Hey, good morning, everybody, and welcome again to Redstone Church, Elizabeth, and we are so excited that you're here with us. And um, for those of you that don't know me, I'm Adam Stein, and I am the guy who has been challenged with the most impossible task in the history of humankind to teach about and un fully unknowable topic, the attributes of God. In other words, who is God? Or what is God like? And obviously we understand that as we look at scripture, this topic is infinite simply because God is infinite. So my goal this morning is not to expound upon every possible nuance of who God is and what all that looks like. Um, but my goal this morning, I just want to start off by saying our goal this morning is to, um, I was telling somebody the other day, I just want to make us thirsty for more. After we leave here today, I want us to worship. I want us to understand that we look to scripture for who God, uh, to learn about who God is. And then I want us to be spurred on in our own personal relationships with God to continue the eternal relationship of forever learning more and going to the greater depths of who God is. But with that said, we do have some, some things to get into before we can even dive in uh, fully. And I stole this quote, Sam used it last week, but this um, sermon series that we're doing um, started last week and for the next few weeks, we're just looking at doctrines, doctrines that we hold to and, and what we believe scripture teaches. Um, and this week obviously is the doctrine of who God is, uh, even though we understand how expansive that is. Uh, but this definition Sam used last week, and it was very helpful. Um, and we read through the whole thing there, but I love that last part when he summarizes himself. And it says, sound doctrine is a summary of the Bible's teaching that is both faithful to the Bible and useful for life. So we understand doctrine is what we, we look at Scripture and we pull what Scripture teaches and then we create what we believe, our convictions. We put them down on paper and say, this is what we believe. This is doctrine. And we can look directly to Scripture and say the entirety. And that's what he says is both faithful to the Bible. Not just one particular verse, but what does all of Scripture come together to support this particular doctrine? Um, so this week we are looking at the attributes of God. Um, and we'll also be looking at, um, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at a lot of different topics. But I think that just continues to connect to last week and the weeks going forward of, of what doctrine is and why it's important. But I want to start us with a couple introduction questions. I want you to ponder this. Number one, if I was to ask you, how do you or how do we know God exists? So think on that for a second. How do I know God exists? It's a difference between I believe God exists, but how? How do I know? What's my source? Or do I look for my information? And then number two, if, as you're pondering question number one, this one comes, it's the very next question that is natural from that is, okay, if I believe God exists and I say I know God exists, well, then how can we know God? Not just know of him, but then how can we know him in a relational way and know true things about him? And then the question that flows from that is, okay, if we can know God is real, and then if we can know that God, how much? Can we know anything? Can we know some things? And these are the questions that, honestly, we all begin to ponder and wonder. They're really big questions, and they're kind of hard to answer. And I, so I wanted to dive into those because these are foundational before we can even get started about teaching about the attributes of God. We have to be able to answer these questions. How do we know God exists? We know God exists through his creation. 
We know God exists through his creation. We see this in Romans one twenty. Paul says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that you are without excuse. So, In other words, Paul is saying, ever since the beginning of creation, everything that God has made, it is revealing his attributes. It is revealing who he is. So we know God exists by looking at his creation. And as part of his creation as human beings, we can look at the moral character that's created in people as proof for God's existence and things like that. But looking at God's creation points to a creator. But then we also know that God exists as we look at the Bible, God's written word. Because unless God re reveals himself to us specifically, humans sinfully misrepresent and misunderstand God's revelation to us through his creation. And Paul begins to continue to expound upon this. It's, if you go back and read Romans chapter 1, he says, yes, creation reveals God's character and attributes, but he goes on to explain that because of man's fallen sinfulness, apart from God's specific revelation, mankind still misses it. We take this creation and we can use it as proof, but without God specifically revealing that, that he's the one that's created this and it's pointing to him, then man misrepresents, misrepresents, creates idols, and Paul talks about that in Romans 1. So they have to come together. The word has to come. As we look to creation, we have the word to support. Oh, this is the specific revelation of what this creation is teaching us. There's two passages that really support this. Is if you look at um, Jeremiah. Well, I'm sorry. One passage. If you look at 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So basically Paul is saying that all of scripture is breathed out were the actual words of God. And I don't want to steal um, Tom's thunder, but I don't know if it's next week. In the next couple of weeks, we'll have a, a sermon on the doctrine of Scripture. So that's for another time. But understanding that if Scripture is breathed out by God, then it's a specific revelation. Then we can go to His Word to understand about Him. There's no better source to go to than the source itself about what God is like. We need to look to see what does God say about Himself. Because that's the only true and right way to build a complete or a true understanding of who God is. So if we can agree on that, or at least follow along on that, okay, we can know God exists through creation, through his script, or through scripture, which is his uh, spoken word written down. The next question is, well, can we know God? Yes, we can know God. We believe that we can know God. If we didn't, then what are we doing? Why are we here? We can know God, but due to God being infinite and us being created, our knowledge of God can never be exhaustive or full. However, our knowledge of God can be true. In other words, it's impossible to fully know God, but it is possible to know true things about God. That, that difference is really important. Yes, we admit that God is infinite and we are created. Jeremiah puts it this way in uh, chapter 9, verses 23 through 24. He says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. So that's God speaking. He said, Let the man who understands and knows me. Let him boast in that. 
that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So as we read Jeremiah, we see God speaking through Jeremiah that says, let the people take confidence in the fact that they can know and understand me. So God in his own words is saying, yes, mankind can know me, can understand me, truly. But yet in 1 Corinthians, God speaking through Paul says this in chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. But look at this. He says, for who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. So at the same time, Jeremiah is saying, we take confidence that we can know, we can rightly know who God is and understand him. Paul is also at the same time saying, but we can't know everything. We can't fully comprehend God. We also quote, there's other scriptures, that, you know, God says that my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So we walk in this balance of we can know God and we can know true things about God, but we cannot fully know God. So that's all as way of introduction. That's just laying a foundation. We have to be able to agree. If you don't, if you can't agree to those or at least understand those foundational topics, then digging into the attributes of who God is, well, then it's, it's impossible. You have to be able to agree, okay, God exists. I can know God exists. And then can I know that God? Yes. Oh, how much? I can truly know God, but not exhaustively, but we can know true things about God. So with all of that as introduction, I've been tasked with helping us understand who God is. Obviously, this is an expansive doctrine, and God is infinite. All the scripture comes together to help us grow in our understanding of God, but for this morning, I want us to zoom in to one particular passage. Now, I've got a lot of other passages we're going to reference, but there's one particular passage I want us to use as our, our anchor point, if that makes sense. Because we have a lot that we're going to cover, so I want to have this one passage to kind of anchor us and keep coming back to to understand what it is we're really talking about here. So Exodus chapter 34, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. I don't have a ton of time to give you all the backstory, and if you're on time, I would love for you to go read all the book of Exodus, and you can understand the backstory. Actually, just read Genesis through Exodus, and you'll really understand the backstory, but in this particular incident, we have God and Moses interacting. God has brought his people out of Egypt. They've come to Mount Sinai. God has made a covenant with his people. Moses is their representative, God's um, prophet or spokesperson to the people. God has given the people the covenant. He's wrote it down with his fingers on stone, the Ten Commandments. This is in chapter 33. Moses comes down from after being on the mountain with God. And the people, because Moses was gone for about 40 days, the people are like, well, our leader's toast. He's not coming back. They all give up hope. They tell Aaron, why don't you take all of our golden earrings and our jewelry, build us a, a golden calf, and we'll worship it as our God. So Aaron does it. They look at it. They say, behold your God. They all start worshiping. And about this time, Moses comes down and says, what are you all doing? I've literally been on the mountain with our God, and now you're already within 40 days worshiping a false god. In his anger, Moses breaks the stone tablets. But then God is merciful. 
He could just strike down all the people then. He could strike Moses down for breaking his tablets. But God, God and Moses, and you can read this in chapter 33. There's some interaction there. And, and Moses goes before God and says, I want to I see you. I want to see your glory. And so again, here we go. We, we go to Exodus 34. We begin it. We pick up here already seeing one of many of God's attributes, but his grace and mercy to come again to, to his people, to show his faithfulness to the covenant. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke, Moses. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me at the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. Let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hands two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses, stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Look at that. God himself is about to proclaim the name. He's about to proclaim who he is to Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head before the earth or toward the earth and worshiped. This is an amazing passage because God himself comes and in his own words explains to Moses who he is. When he says, I will tell you, I will proclaim my name to you. He's not just saying my title. He's I'm going to proclaim to you who I am. Moses, you're going to understand a little bit better of who I am. And I wanted to, to jump into this passage uh, because as we look at this particular passage, we see that God reveals himself to Moses. But there are three things that God causes, causes in Moses' heart and, or, or even in his physical response. He causes Moses to see him more clearly. You see that in, in verses 5 and 6. He causes Moses to see him clearly. As he just he, Physically, he sets him there. And then he passes by him. Moses is, is having a physical experience of seeing and knowing God with his physical senses. And at the same time, God is proclaiming with his own words of who he is. So it's just simply the first thing that's happening is, is Moses just gazing upon who God is. Some with his eyes. I'm sure he could feel the presence. But at the same time, he's hearing it at the same time. All of his senses are beginning to understand a little bit more just to see, just to look, just to gaze upon who God is. But there's a deeper level of it too. Because not only is he seeing him more clearly, but as you look in verses 6 and 7, Moses is knowing him more rightly, more correctly. So it's not just that he sees him and is, is just looking at him. It's that God is proclaiming very deep truths, specific things about who God is. Things that from that moment forward, Moses will be able to ponder and to remember and to study and to pray about. Not just, I saw the Lord, but here are true things about God that he proclaimed to me that I can take with me and continue to dig into 
and know as I approach him for the rest of Moses' life, his relationship, I'm, for, I'm sure that this experience was one that he looked back on a lot. And it wasn't just an experience of seeing God and devotion. It was also an experience of worshiping God in his mind, loving the Lord his God with all of his mind, because now God has proclaimed truths that he will carry for his life. But then there's a physical response, too, because then in verse 8, it says Moses bows down before him. He couldn't help but respond to who God was with worship, physically and emotionally, in his spirit. But very physically, we see Moses bow down before God. And so now you're probably wondering, this is awesome. We haven't even talked about any of the attributes of God yet. I mean, yeah, we read some as God's proclaiming himself to Moses. But I wanted to look at this passage to help us connect and to make it a little bit more real. Because just like Moses, we are humans. We are created. And we are God's people. And through the covenant that God has made through Christ, we are also walking with God just like Moses did. So we can look at this experience and understand what it looks like to have God reveal himself to us. What does that look like? So this morning, my prayer is that we too would see God more clearly. After this morning, I want us to be able to know him more rightly. And then our goal also is to grow in worshiping him accordingly. That's a tall task for a limited amount of time, but that's what we're going to dive into. And that's our goal uh, this morning. So the first one that we look at here. Moses is caused to see God more clearly. And my prayer is that this morning we too would see God more clearly. Are we going to be able to see him fully? No, but we can see him truly or see true things about him. And look back again at verse 5 in the first part of 6. It says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. He's physically there. His presence is there. Proclaims the name of the Lord. And it says the Lord passed before him. So not just in word. But there's some form of God's physical presence is there. Obviously, Moses can't see him fully, but God does allow him to see a part of him or, or something of him physically pass by. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. And then he begins to go down this list. So Moses sees him. And my prayer is just as God allowed Moses to see parts of him, God has also revealed him, himself to us. Just like we talked about earlier through his creation, through his word. And it's a whole other study to look how Jesus Christ is the full incarnate God, word wrapped in flesh. Go look at John chapter 1. That's a study for another time. But Jesus Christ is the culmination of the word wrapped in flesh. We look at all these things. We can see God also. We can see true things about God. God has passed before us in his word, in his creation. Is God physically passing through us in a being just like Moses experienced? Not necessarily, but we can see and gaze and look upon God as we look at his word, thinking on his creation and also obviously thinking about Jesus Christ, the fulfillment and the, the word made flesh. As we study the Bible, we realize that God has many attributes or character traits. And this doesn't just include names or titles. And that's a nuance we have to touch for just a second. So you're going to say, um, okay, God is king. God is shepherd. Okay, we're not going to touch on those things, right? So there's a difference between God's attributes. We're just looking at who God is before God acts. Does that make sense? Who God is just internally in his being, his attributes, his traits. It would be another study to look at how has God revealed himself in the way that he acts out 
those traits as a king, as a judge, as a shepherd, as a father. That's a whole other study and would be true, but we're taking one step further back to the source of just looking at who is God internally that causes him, that, that allows him, that, that he acts out and walks in those different titles, those different positions of authority and role. And so as we look at these different things, I begin to realize that either A, I choose a few of my favorite attributes and we just look at those, but then I realized that depending on who was up here, it would be different attributes. And I didn't feel like that would be very faithful to Scripture. If we're tasked with looking at the attributes of God, I don't want to simply look at one or two of what I like, what I think is the most, oh, this is really who God is. And, and if somebody else was tasked to come up here, they might look at other ones. Well, then I thought, okay, well, how many attributes are there? As you look in Scripture, and I was studying and reading different theologians, and how many attributes of God are there, and who, who decides how to word them? There's between 25, 27, 28 attributes of God, depending on sometimes someone will bring certain attributes under the heading of others, but the discussion is still the same. There are a lot, and all of them are true, and all of them are equal in value. So then I was left scratching my head this week of, how do I explain or teach 20-something attributes of God faithfully. And then my other option was I just don't touch on them at all. Like So then I began to pray. And as we looked earlier, we look to God's word for truth about who God is. And so this morning I want to do something a little different. I just want to read God's word to you. And so in these next few moments... I ask that you put your pen down, your pencil, which you probably never heard anybody say uh, while they're preaching or giving a sermon. I just want you to listen. And you're not even going to be able to track and flip to all these verses in time, like keep up with me. That's okay. I had to type them all out, print them all right here. There's a lot. And that's a good thing. And you're here in a moment, as I begin to read through these different attributes, I'm not even going to define the attributes or really give a lot of time to explain each one. I'm just going to tell you which attribute we're discussing, and I'm going to read a verse or several verses, a passage that supports that. And you may think to yourself, well, that's a little different. I would like some further explanation. I have a handout that I've typed up this week in the back that I would love for you to take with you as you go today. All the attributes are listed there, and not just one, but there's several verses for each attribute that you can go in your own time and study further and, and dig into and things like that. Again, my goal today is just to make us thirsty for more of who God is. So with that being said, as I've got your attention, I want us to look at God's word. And just as Moses, as God came and proclaimed himself to Moses and Moses saw him and just gazed upon who he is. As we look at God through his word, I just want us to look at who God is just to see him. We're not even going to fully know. I don't want you to take notes right now. Let's just look at him for a moment or for a few moments. And so with that being said, as we look in the, in the words of uh, Exodus 34, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God. And the first one he says is merciful, a God merciful. And as we look at that, the first thing um, we turn and look at 2 Samuel. Sorry, I have my pages mixed up here. 
In Exodus 34, the first one God starts with is merciful. And that's what we'll start with. So we look at 2 Samuel 24 and 14. God merciful. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hands of man. Our God is mercy. A God of grace. Our God is gracious. In 1 Peter 5.10, Peter says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Our God is patient and slow to anger. This is who he is. It says in Nahum 1.3, The Lord is slow to anger and, in, and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. The Lord is slow to anger. Our God is love. 1 John 4.8, Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. Our God is faithful. Deuteronomy 32 and 4. The rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness. And without iniquity. Just and upright is he. Our God is truth. And this uh, in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Our God is goodness. He is good. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 34, 8. Our God is holy. Isaiah 6 Verses 2 through 3, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two, two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Our God is holy. Our God is righteous and he is just. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins and it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans 3, 25 through 26. Our God is wrathful towards sin. Romans 1, 18. I mistyped it there. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their own unrighteousness suppress truth. Are you feeling a little overwhelmed yet? Our God is jealous. He's a jealous God. Exodus 25, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Our God is peace. Hebrews 13, 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. God of peace. Our God is wisdom. In Job 12, 13. With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. 
Our God is knowledge. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart. And He knows everything. 1 John 3.20 Our God is invisible to the King of the ages. Immortal, invisible. The only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Timothy 1.17 Our God is spirit. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. John 4, 23-24 Our God is eternal. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Our God is eternal. Psalm 92. Our God is unchanging. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Malachi 3, 6. Our God is independent. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and of earth. He does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Acts 17, 24 through 25. Our God is independent. Our God is perfect. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Matthew 5, 48. Our God is blessed in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. 1 Timothy 1.11 Our God is beauty. One thing have I asked of the Lord and that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Psalm 27.4 Our God wills what He will. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Ephesians 1.11 Our God is omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Our God is omnipresent. Our God is all powerful. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Jeremiah 32, 17. Our God is glory. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. Revelation 21, 23. Our God is freedom. He has freedom. Daniel 4, 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand, and none can say to him, what have you done? God is free. And lastly, God is unity. There's not a scripture that has this verse 
but it's implied. Because we see in 1 John, it says God is love. A little bit later in 1 John, we see God is light. And we've also looked at all these attributes of who God is. It's important to understand that God is not light in the day and love at night, or he takes a two-hour shift of being wrathful towards sin, and then a two-hour shift of love or grace. One of the most important attributes of God for us to be able to understand him rightly is God is unity. God is all of his attributes, all the time, to the fullest extent that he can possibly be. And we must understand that. Because in our hearts, in my heart, it is so tempting to take one attribute of God, to lift it above others and take other attributes and lower them, depending on how we lean, how we like, what we perceive should be God. And my prayer is that we would run far from that temptation. We cannot build a God different than the, God, the way God has revealed himself, for that would be a false God. That's not God. God, in his scripture, has revealed himself as all of these things to the fullest degree. God is unity. He's all of them all the time. And I have kind of a couple images to help us understand as we look at the culmination of these attributes. God's unity is not. I think sometimes, and this image helped my mind, maybe it'll help you. Sometimes we, this is just a few of the attributes we listed, but we kind of put them all together, but they're still their own individual circles. They're very compartmentalized. And then when God wants to, then okay, today God's going to be love. Okay, today's God's beauty, God's goodness. And then they all kind of come together, but they're all still very separate. And I don't think that scripture does not present a God compartmentalized. But then sometimes we're like, okay, if he's not compartmentalized, maybe like God is, is there in the middle, that's God. And then all these attributes are on the outside. And then like every once in a while, he kind of operates in one particular one or a couple at a time or something like that. But yet this still doesn't paint the picture. They're still individualized and separate from one another. And that's not God's unity. And even though this hurts your head, this is not one of those optical illusions. That if you turn sideways, there's going to be like a lady's nose or a wine cup. It's not one of those things. This is just to help us understand if this dark circle, all of this is, is who God is. Then the horizontal lines, I'm sorry, the horizontal lines, let's just say those would be love. The vertical lines would be God's justice. The diagonal line going from top right to bottom left would be God's wrath towards sin. And the, the diagonal line from top left to bottom right would be God's goodness. And then I could put another line and another line and another line until we have 20-something attributes of who God is. And they're all intertwined. They're all happening simultaneously. And you can't pull one without pulling them all. God is unity. And all the attributes that we just looked at, as we looked at God's scriptures and gaze upon who God is, we have to understand that God is unified in his being. God is not compartmentalized. He is one God, triune God, who is unified in all of his attributes simultaneously. So you're probably sitting here like I am, a little overwhelmed. It's like, I, I wanted to stop after the first two and go, okay, I need some time to dig into these. Let me go research. Let me take some notes. I don't understand that definition that you threw out there or that word I don't recognize. And that's okay to feel that way. Like I said, I have a handout. We'll dig into that in our own time. That's my prayer and my hope. But I want us to, I wanted us to simply look at all of these attributes of God 
I didn't read from all 66 books of the Bible, but it was pretty close. The Bible is a story about God and his decision to redeem mankind. But it is his story first and foremost, and it is who he is. So we look at these attributes and we understand that God is unified in who he is. And my prayer is that we would be like Moses as we were looking in Exodus 34, that we have gazed upon God. We've just begun just to scratch the surface of looking at him in his scripture, feeling overwhelmed, feeling the need to go dig for some definitions, feeling the need to ask more questions, but just overwhelmed by looking at the depths and the magnitude of, wow, this is our God, all of these attributes all the time to the fullest extent. But then it doesn't stop there. But just like Moses, and, and we've already read these verses, but the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the children's children, through the third and fourth generation. So here we, we see that simultaneously, obviously these verses are the same that we used for Moses seeing God. But simultaneously, as Moses is seeing God, looking upon God, gazing upon his beauty and hearing God proclaim himself, Moses is also beginning to grow in understanding, right knowledge of who God is. Just beginning to scratch the surface. But it's starting there. And it had already started in Moses' life before that. But in this particular moment... He sees God, but then he begins to mentally understand, just ever so slightly, ever so slowly, starting the lifelong, the eternal relationship of growing in knowledge, right knowledge of who God is, what God is like, what are his attributes. And my prayer is that we also would be able to look at this passage, to look at all the passages that I've read, and also to grow in knowing God more rightly. Or correctly. To see, gaze, and look upon God, as we were looking at the first part of, of, that chap, of that passage, as Moses gazed and looked upon God, and we have done that through looking at his word, it leads our hearts to devotion. It leads our hearts to feel overwhelmed. It leads our hearts to feel encouraged. It leads our hearts to devotion to God. But then it leads us into deeper knowledge. Seeing God causes us to ponder, to process, and study more about who God is. Our seeing God leads to rightly knowing God, and then it leads us to grow in knowing more rightly about God. And so as I said in the beginning this morning, my goal is not to be able to, for all of us to leave here today and be like, well, we know the fullest extent. So, you know, I could write my own theology book. Adam did such a great job of defining all those things. We can't do that here in this time and space. But what we can do is just as Moses in that moment, he saw God and he began to know him more rightly. And then it's a lifelong process. Actually, it's an eternal relationship of growing in knowledge of God. I, my desire is that we would leave here thirsty for more. As we have looked upon who God is in his scriptures, who God is in his word, all across scripture, as we've gazed upon these attributes of this is our God. My prayer and my hope is that you can use the handout that I gave you. You can use other books. I put some resources on there. Continue to dig in scripture. And that we would just start now and just continue to grow and knowing more 
and knowing more and knowing more as we realize we will never, even in an eternal relationship with God, never come to the end of who God is. We will never finish. And that is really good news as we study and learn about the attributes of God. So my prayer is that we would um, just grow in our knowledge and continue to build upon that for the rest of our lives. But then we look at this third part, to worship him accordingly. In verse 8, going back to Exodus 34, it says, And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Moses couldn't help but respond. He didn't have a choice but to respond in worship. As God passed before him and revealed who he was to Moses, Moses bowed his head in worship. He responded in a very physical way of, wow, I'm overwhelmed. Isaiah says in chapter 6, when he sees God, he says, I am undone. He says, God, take me out. I'm not even, I shouldn't be able to see these things. We look at Revelation. John, God, Jesus reveals himself to John and he falls over dead and Jesus has to pick him up. So we respond as we look upon who God is. As we continue to grow in knowledge, not just today, but every day, our hearts continually respond in worship. Last week, Sam reminded us that doctrine affects worship. Well, you can only worship God truly if you see and know him truly. And I love Sam's uh, example or metaphor last week. If you were here and long story short, he basically like messed up his hair or his hairs, his wife's like hair and eye color. But he was basically saying it would be really weird if he like created a great romantic atmosphere, made a dinner for his wife, proclaimed his love to her and said, I love your, your blonde hair, your blue eyes. And then we all are sitting here thinking your wife has brown hair and brown eyes. So even though he had a ton of devotion and a ton of emotional excitement, if it's going in the wrong direction, it's very offensive. It doesn't matter how much you mean it. If it's wrong, it's wrong, and that's offensive to whoever it is you're trying to devote yourself to. And that's just on a human level. So for us to come before God and to say, I'm worshiping him, I'm devoting myself to him, but a particular attribute or many attributes you've changed or twisted or just don't look at or think about, or you worship God in, in some different sense, then you're actually very offensive because God has clearly expressed, that's not who I am. Worship me accordingly. So my encouragement is to us is as we grow in right knowledge, it will allow us to respond in right worship. And I don't have the time to uh, talk about and to define a whole sermon about what worship is. But as we look upon God and begin growing in the knowledge of him, how can we not respond in worship? How can we not respond in worship? Just by reading all those passages, if you go and dig in your own time, how do we not respond in worship? And, and I know right now we're thinking all these things out here, all of this is who God is. But if we had a case study, and I don't have all the time to dig into this, but if you had a case study of, let's just look at the cross. How many attributes of God are simultaneously taking place at the cross? If we believe and understand that God is unity... All of them. That is our God. Because on the cross, as Jesus Christ spreads himself on that cross and dies, 
we see all of God's attributes on full display. God's wrath towards sin poured out on Christ. His justice and His righteousness and His holiness that mankind cannot enter into His presence unless there is a Savior, unless the payment for sin is taken care of. But at the same time, Jesus obediently and willingly goes to the cross. This is our God who shows His grace and His love and His peace to reconcile mankind to Himself. And I could take a lot of time looking at how every single attribute that we just discussed was 100% on display just at the cross. That is who our God is. He operates in all of His attributes all the time. And it is glorious. Because just at the cross, we, you and I, have the opportunity to be in relationship with this holy and this righteous and this overwhelmingly glorious God because of His grace and His mercy both happening at the same time, all happening at the same time at the cross. So we can just look to the gospel and just stop right there and see a case study of all of the attributes on display of God walking in the fullness of who He is. Freedom, independently, no one twisting His arm, no one causing, He doesn't need anything. There's no motivation other than He is good, He is blessed, and it's His glory. That's our God. And that's who He is. How do we not respond in worship to these truths? This is the beginning of the understanding of the attributes of God. So let us be a people of worship as we realize the magnitude of our God, as we continue to see Him and grow in knowledge of Him. Our worship will grow as well. So, just as we're closing out, looking at response, if you're here today, you're a believer, a Christian, a follower of Jesus. My goal is not to do an additional sermon on worship and the different ways in which we can worship in our lives. That's a whole other study. But what I do want to say is this. Our seeing and knowing God is directly connected to our worship. So I encourage you, Jesus follower, Christian, respond to who God is in your words, in your thoughts, in your actions. Sing to Him. Have integrity when others aren't looking to Him. Worship Him in the way that you give and the way that you serve. And there's so many more things. In the way that you pray, whether they're prayers of adoration and thanksgiving as you just worship Him in that manner, or even prayers that you ask for something. You are showing your worship that you believe He's the one that can answer it. And when you go to the Word and read Word, because Peter said that where else can we go but Christ, you have the words of eternal life. It is worship when you read and go to the Word, understanding that it's eternal life. Because you're stepping and believing that God is who He says He is. So anyways, we could dig into all of those things a lot deeper in our own time. But I encourage you this. I encourage you to do this. Allow right understanding of who God is to be the foundation of all our doctrines. All of our beliefs start with the core of right understanding of who God is. And then let us respond in worship with our lives, with our words, with our thoughts, 
and all that we are and all that we do, let us do it unto the glory of God as we respond, as we've seen him and grow in knowledge of him. And then lastly, if you're here today and you're not a Jesus follower and, and you don't consider yourself a Christian, you've never placed your faith in Christ as your hope alone, my charge to you is respond to the gospel. And you say, well, what's the gospel? The gospel is we look at the cross and think about Jesus Christ, the son of God himself, taking the place for sinners. For all humans have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But this God that we've, our God that we've been looking at, he made a way. And Jesus wraps himself in flesh as the son of God and lives a perfect life. And then as he is crucified, he pays the debt. He pays the price. He redeems us from our sin. And then throughout scripture, we learn that the way that we enter into this relationship and, it, and respond to this gift is as we repent or turn and confess our sin and believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that his debt does pay the price of our sin, and that he is our only hope and only way to the Father. So if you're here today and you're not walking with Jesus, I encourage you to respond, to think, to ponder. If you have more questions, I myself, I would love to, to dig into those conversations, find one of our pastors. Honestly, there's a lot of people here, our members, you can ask them and, and they can and engage in those conversations as well. We would love to invite you to respond to the gospel. And so as we think about all this today, as we look at truly who God is, we begin to just scratch the surface of the attributes of who God is. And then as we begin to understand the necessity to grow in right knowledge, we see him, we know him, and continue to grow in right knowing and knowledge of him. And then let us respond in worship, not just today. Yes, I encourage you, here in a moment, we're going to take communion and we're going to sing. Those are ways that we worship. My encouragement to you is that as you go out of here, you grow in knowledge, then you also grow in worship. And they go hand in hand for the rest of our lives and honestly for the rest of our eternal relationship with God. And then lastly, my encouragement is to respond in worship or to respond to the gospel. So with all of that being said, let me pray. God, we thank you for who you are. We understand, we come before you and confess, we cannot fully know you. We cannot fully know you to the depths of who you are. We cannot exhaustively know even one of your attributes to the fullest extent. But you have created us in your image and you have allowed us to know true things about you. So my prayer this morning is that would you just cause a great thirst and hunger in our hearts to grow for you, to know you more, to know you rightly, to understand you in our minds, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that our minds would know you rightly and that our hearts would devote ourselves to you completely and our souls and that we would walk in all of our strength to respond in worship to who you are. And so I pray that now in this moment, I encourage each of us to just bow our head for a moment and just respond in our heart and take a moment to confess, God, I don't, maybe I don't see you or honor you rightly in all of your attributes. Or God, maybe I confess there's areas of my heart that I lift up certain attributes over others. I ask that you would take that before the Father. And I also ask God, would you help us to know you rightly, to go to your word 
and as believers and as a body to grow together in understanding of you. Jesus, it's in your name I pray. Amen. So, um, honestly, I don't see a clock. I don't even know how long that took, but we love to pass the mic after most of our sermons and just to have a time of response. So as you're praying and thinking about these things, if you have a thought, a question, please don't make it too hard. Any questions are allowed, but I may say, let me take notes on that question and I can get back to you. Um, but questions, thoughts, other verses that, that, that you think of, we want to take a moment um, to just pass the mic for just, just a quick minute. So maybe a few people who would like to respond. We got Cole here and then Brandon. So I had a couple other verses come to mind as I was listening to you. I was thinking about how God talks about himself and then how Jesus also talks about himself. And it reminded me of the Gentle and Lonely book that was passed out a while back. Mm. And the verse that they centered that book around was, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And I thought that was interesting that we have this triune God who isn't contradictory, and you have all of these powerful words that describe our God that he would assign to himself. And then when Jesus talks about himself, he describes himself as gentle and lowly. And then that's compared to a passage in Leviticus that I read a while back that has never left me since I read it. Um, it says, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. The fire and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And that's a pretty stark contrast, but that's challenged me and I haven't forgot it because I recognize that both of those stories describe a perfect and holy God and they aren't in battle with one another. So it's just something I've been pondering for a while. No, that's great. Thanks for sharing. It definitely takes us back to the cross again as Jesus exemplifies that humility, paying the price for sin so that we can be in relationship with that holy and perfect God. Um, in, in your thought, the point you made about all of the attributes of God coming to a point and being on display at the cross, um, that, that, that hit me really deep. Uh, and I think that also the cross wasn't the end because we have the empty tomb that mm. shows that Christ triumphed over the grave. Um, and then I think in Christ, you know, and in the whole of the gospel, his death and his triumph over death. Um, Colossians chapter one describes Christ as embodying the fullness of God. Yeah. So I just want to read this as well. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. 
He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And he goes on to say, and you who once were hostile and alienated in mind, um, now he has reconciled in his body, his flesh, in his death. And then we also know elsewhere in scripture, we're united with him also in his resurrection. So it's just the, the fullness of God embodied in Christ and he draws yeah. us to himself. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. So I've been reading a book by Jen Wilkins. It's called None Like Him. And it, the subtitle is 10, Way, 10 Things That Are True About God and Only God. Mm. And then she has a second book that's called In His Image, 10 Things That Are True About God and Us. Mm -hmm. But in the first book, None Like Him, one of her chapters that really has stuck out with me is how God is unchanging. Like he's unchangeable. And she talks through each, each chapter about how this is who God is and this is how we are not like God and gives very good examples of we aren't like this. We aren't God. And yet in the original sin, right, the first sin was us trying to be like God. And that's what we struggle with continually, wanting to be who God is and wanting to have these attributes that we never can have. And um, so in this chapter of God being unchanging, she mentions that in his fullness, all, all of these things, they never change. He is this. This is who he is. But to be human is to change. Like we grow older every day we're changing, even if we don't know it. And sanctification in itself is changing. So when we try to be unchanged, when we're trying to be like God, we are in a sense, refusing sanctification, which is what he offers us. Like he is the one who changes us and makes us new. And if we're trying to be like him, we can't be how he created us to be. Yeah. And I just thought that was a really cool point of like, yes, we, we aren't God and that's good. It's good that we are not God because yeah. he did not make us to be like God and you know, Anyways, hope that no, that's, that's very helpful. And I think if, I mean, there's some really big words that I'm not super familiar with as you dig into theological books, but yeah, they, they break down the attributes of God. A lot of times they'll categorize them. And in, in, in other words, like you said, like the ones that we don't share with God at all, and then other attributes that he's allowed us to share with him. And that's a great way as we're growing and studying who God is. It's a great way to approach it is to begin to look at the attributes and ask yourself, Okay, which one has God given to mankind that we can share a little bit in? And then which ones can we not share at all? Knowing that we can't share any of them fully, but that's yeah, great. Um, touching on what Brandon said, in, in chapter 2 also it says, all, In Christ all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ. Hmm. But then we read in Philippians... Um, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider himself uh, or did not try to grasp um, equality with God, but made himself nothing, taking the very uh, form of a servant. Mm -hmm. 
So, and that, that's what becomes a stumbling block for many people. You know, how can someone with all those attributes, who is God, allow himself to, you know, to suffer in that way? And uh, Paul addresses that to the Corinthians. He says, you know, the message of the cross is foolishness. It's just, uh, to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And Paul says it's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. And he goes on to say, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. So those were verses that your message brought to mind. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Think about. But yeah, so it's, we'll go ahead and, and finish up. I'm going to close this in prayer, and then um, Sam's going to lead us in a time of communion. So let me close this in prayer. God, again, we thank you for this time and this space to be together. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you and um, singing and in song and in communion and also as we look at your word. I pray that what we have just began to scratch the surface of here today, you would lead us um, deeper into the depths of relationship with you. Would you allow us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind, with all of our strength, God, that we would grow in right understanding, that we would grow in devotion as we just gazed upon your beauty, and that we would respond in worship. In Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Adam. So as we step into a time of communion, what communion does for us is it reminds us what Christ did on the cross for us. It reminds us the gospel because it's a picture of those things. Um, and so as they're passing out the elements in the back, I um, just want to say that we want to make sure and mention that communion is for believers specifically. And so there's no shame in not taking it. If you are not a believer, um, the Word of God is very clear that it's important um, to, to take it correctly and rightly. And so I'll read from 1 Corinthians where Paul is essentially rebuking the Corinthians for doing so incorrectly. And so he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. This is in remembrance of me. And so this picture of the bread at, at its broken is a picture of Christ's body that is broken for you on your behalf. Likewise, it says, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And so that's why we want to say it's for believers specifically. And so this picture of the juice it represents the blood of Christ that was literally shed on the cross for our sins. And so that's what we take communion for each and every week is to say, like, this is what Christ Jesus has done. This is a picture of the gospel, which is true for us each and every day. And if you're like me, you need to be reminded of that picture as often as possible. So as the elements are coming around, um, you, whenever you're ready, I would recommend taking a minute and just praying. I'll pray for us as well, but pray. And then when you're ready, you can go ahead and take of those elements and be reminded of this beautiful picture of the gospel. So, Lord Jesus, thank you for humbling yourself, uh, for coming to earth, living a perfect life, and dying in our place. Um, thank you that you have given us your righteousness and taken away uh, 
sin and shame. And uh, we're thankful that we have faith in you, um, that you are raised, that you're with the Father, you're coming for us again. So be with us now as we take this and as we continue in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.